This is Cup One. Rachel speaking. Pressure coming here. Pressure coming. We're 1.5 below. Stand by. Two times here, boys. We're looking at 10.5 to 42. Hi everyone and thanks for joining us on another podcast. I'm back on a blustery seafront in Cowes looking at a rather empty Solent. It's been a bumper summer here with the Fastnet, Cowes Week of course, the Royals, Will and Kate racing each other off the Royal Yacht Squadron. Brilliant. And a rather nail-biting sail GP. But now there is a, a wonderful calmness about the place. I'm just back from holidaying, two weeks windsurfing in France with the family, watching Robbie Nash videos in the evening and wishing I was a whole lot better at it. I also surprisingly really enjoyed open water swimming and was full of bravado when I got home about swimming every day. I'll let you know how that goes and any tips on, on keeping warm as the winter progresses would be well received. Well, many of you left such fantastic feedback about last month's Chris Draper pod. Thank you, it really makes a difference. And you know, he's a real gem and I'm so glad you thought so too. We spoke to Chris just before he led the British team into the Cows Sail GP event. If you missed it, it didn't pan out as he had hoped. They started the week by being the first team to break the much sought after and hyped 50 knot barrier and had high hopes for a decent result come racing. But a rather blustery and choppy cows took a few scalps and theirs was one of them. A violent nosedive saw Chris catapulted out of the cockpit. If you haven't seen it, it's pretty brutal. I mean, definitely worth a look. And not only was Chris pretty beaten up, but so was the machine. So much damage, in fact, that their event was over. Now this next pod, we actually recorded a little while ago in Nassau, Bahamas, at the brilliant event that's the Star Sailors League final. An event full of sailing legends. And leading the charge at the top of the legend status leaderboard was this man, Paul Kayard. He's without doubt American sailing royalty with an almost unfeasible sailing CV. A fierce competitor, an Olympian, Ocean Race winner, America's Cup veteran, and so, so much more. Caird, as you will hear, is also a brilliant communicator. He refreshingly comes from an era of sailors who said what they think, who has opinion, and is untouched by any media training spin. I have just listened to this pod again and was captivated. Great candid stories, funny moments, and at times quite emotional. I hope you enjoy the hour I spent with Paul Kayard. Podcast number one, the guy who hates to lose still hates to lose. How lucky did I get to be the guy that Disney called up and said, will you be Captain Jack Sparrow? Well, Paul, thank you very much for joining me on our podcast. I, I'm so delighted that you're doing this. And, you know, we're currently in Nassau at the Star Sailors League. And I really wanted to speak to you here, partly because I know you're terribly fond of this place. And also, you are never happier, are you, than when you're, you're helming your star? 
That's correct. I got two loves of my life here. Nassau, for I've always said, is the best place in the world to sail. And um, the Star is my favorite boat. So, yeah, when those two things come together, I'm super happy. And uh, today was a great day for me, kind of getting my boat sorted out and having three, at least three really good races out of four and qualifying for the SSL finals. So, um, yeah, I'm happy. What is it about Nassau that, that's so special? You know, Nassau was one of those places when I was a kid that still had that real island mystique and was much less, I first came here in 1978, 40 years ago. And um, there was no, well, there might've been one bridge, but there was no Atlantis. And you know, everything was just very basic. Uh, Vince Brune and I used to go uh, boogie boarding over on some beach on Paradise Island. Um, you could fly here on a seaplane called Chalks and land right in the harbor. And it was just that, epitome of an island, um, you know, sandy beaches, super crystal clear water, and Derwood Knowles was one of the kings of the star class of that time, like with Lowell North and Connor and Black Holler, and this was his home, Waters, and um, so we were coming, whenever we would race here, we were coming to Derwood's home, Waters, and Derwood, of course, you know, gold medalist. From yeah. yeah, yeah, Derwood, gold medalist, 1964. Um, and I own the boat, Jim, now. So I'm really proud and happy, and I think he's happy too. I can't believe that you're still, I mean, you're so into it, Paul, still. I mean, you're in great shape. I know you've been, you know, been really training for this event. What do you think keeps you going to that level still? It's probably just ego, you know? I mean, uh, I was talking to an old basketball coach who's uh, coached Notre Dame basketball, which was some school that I idolized when I was in high school and in fact one of my classmates played basketball at Notre Dame and you know we were talking about getting and the aging athlete you know and it's something we all have to deal with and sailing we're pretty fortunate because we keep racing I mean baseball players and football players they're they're done when they're 35 and um, sailors and golfers get to kind of keep going so um, but it's interesting the body's a little slower everything is a little sore and it hurts but the brain that competitive brain is the same. The guy who hates to lose still hates to lose. And that doesn't ever change. So I think um, it just keeps me going. And you know, after the first two days here, I was a little bit thinking, oh boy, maybe my days really are coming up, you know, and, um, but you know, you see what I did, a little tweak to the mast and move the step back a little and it's a new boat. It takes a, a lot of effort. I, I mean, it, I'm going to mention your age, you're, you're 59, but as I say, you know, in great shape. You can walk around in Lycra, Paul Kayard, and not many people can. But you look at the, the lineup, you know, particularly here in Nassau, it's, you know, it's the champions, the current champions, it's, it's some phenomenal athletes right in their prime, and yet you can still mix it with them. I mean, how does that make you feel? It makes me feel great. It's the best age defying medicine that there is, you know, to come and race with these Finn sailors and uh, the Hungarian kid who won the Finn Gold Cup or Georginia who won the Finn Gold Cup previously and then just won the Star Worlds, you know. Same thing was happening on the last day of the Star Worlds. I was battling it. I had a chance to win the Star Worlds on the last day, which hasn't happened to me in maybe 30 years. And um, 
of course, again, the ego gets going and even though I didn't really expect to do that, well, there I was the morning of the last race and I have a chance to win this thing. And then I didn't win. I came in third. And so, you know, I can't, and it was a windy day like this, the last day and we had a double header and, you know, Jorginho's good and fast and 26 years old. And, but I was disappointed. I was all bummed out. And it took about a week before I realized that that wasn't, that was a pretty darn good achievement. And, you know, then I became a little bit more satisfied with it. But, uh, yeah, all that just keeps you going. I guess you just don't ever want to think that you're over the hill. I think the last time we hung out was in Bermuda. And you're, you're one of my go-tos in television. You know, a man who, who actually has credibility and has, you know, massive opinion. And, and I love that. And we were in the rib, weren't we? Do you remember? We were watching, mm -hmm. yes. we were watching you know, the Kiwis and Oracle. And you had your head in your hands most of the time, yeah. you know, watching Jimmy Spittle trying to start. Yeah. Yeah, um, that was our last time, and you know we've had a, we've had uh, a number of great interviews. You've done some great CNN mainsels that I really appreciate having in my archive, and you know I'll never forget the first time I met you in Athens, and I asked you to <laughs> take the picture of me and Phil getting the silver medal at the pre-Olympics, and. I honestly wasn't sure, you know, there were three blondes sitting behind me. I didn't know who was what. And someone said, oh, you, dude, you just asked Shirley Robertson to take your picture. I'm like, oh, that's, that, that was pretty impressive. So, yeah, I think I really respect the work you do. I watch all your CNN mainsels and everything. And, um, you know, you're a great reporter. And it's great to have someone as knowledgeable to talk to because you get it. You you and you can present it to the public. Oh, that's sweet. But, you know, I love, I, I love having you in, in my boat at the America's Cup because actually you're not afraid to say what you think. And quite often, particularly in this sport, that's, you know, that's very rare. I properly treasure that. You know, why, why do you think you feel comfortable sort of voicing an opinion? I guess I probably think that my insight's pretty good and, you know, I'm willing to back back that and go public with it and not not afraid of that um, you know an interesting uh, observation is when I first started doing the America's Cup Black Holler and Connor were kind of and Buddy Melgis were the, the in Perth and you know the ones I'm thinking of are the press conferences in Perth and I mean they used to just say whatever came to their mind and it was and, you know, that prevailed for 87, 92. We were pretty good that way, too, me and Chris Dixon and Ian Murray. And, but it seems to me that over the subsequent 20 or 30 years, things have gotten really dumbed down and everybody wants to make a politically correct statement rather than really what they think. And it's unfortunate because I think it takes a lot of the personality out of you know the interviews which is what the public wants to see and they want to they want to see your personality and your opinions um you know unrestrained so i think um yeah every once in a while i'll put my foot in my mouth but uh by and large i i like the way i handle my public uh representation do you not care what what people think paul what do you think actually people think of you well, you know, you have different different types of people. I think people who really know me know that I'm a pretty nice guy, and uh, of course, I'm a competitive person, and you know, I, I can be intense, and 
you know, aggressive. I can be all of that. Um, but I'm also pretty compassionate and willing to help people. Um, people who don't know me probably see more, um, you know, uh, maybe they might think of me as cocky and, you know, out the outspokenness might come off as being a little brash and it might put some people off. One of the things that I wanted to talk to you about was, was I suppose, you know, how diverse our sport is and, and how you've managed to sort of occupy all the corners. You know, you've, you've been offshore, you've won offshore, you've, you know, you've been in the America's Cup, you've ran an America's Cup team, you know, you've been to the Olympics. You know, from small boats all the way up. And we talk about some of some of the youngsters now as being able to, you know, people like Pete Burling, you know, they've just America's Cup Vol Ocean Race, Olympic medals. But you've done all that as well. And I wonder what sort of mindset you need to just, you know, take your skills from star sailing and then you know, move that into, you know, the offshore world or the America's Cup world. And and looking back, you know, what you what you make of that incredible career. I think um, the main thing that allowed me to adapt to all the different disciplines within our sport is just determination. Um, so I, the will to win and the, the distaste for losing drives me to succeed. Then you need a certain amount of creativity. You know, again, this will probably sound cocky, but I mean, you have to be able to figure things out in these different games. You have to figure out, well, what, what works in this game? How are we going to win the Whitbread Around the World race? We're a bunch of, you know, Olympic sailors and America's Cup sailors. But we, we had a, a philosophy and a strategy, and, you know, we, uh, we had a few mistakes early on, but we learned from our mistakes, and, you know, we, we built a very good mousetrap. So um, I think the key traits are if you're determined to win you will and you're relatively you know smart you're gonna find a way are you surprised by by the pete burlings and the, the blair tooks and and how successful they've been They're not even you know 30. yeah well you have some extreme talents um you know mark mendelblatt here is a great example of a probably a pretty extreme talent i mean robert scheidt won the the qualifiers, but Robert sails a lot in small boats and he's very prepared. Mendelblatt showed up the afternoon of the last practice day and went out for a one hour sail against nobody and was leading the thing after, you know, yesterday. So I think Mendelblatt's also a great talent, but not being used, you know, to the level that Robert is using his talent. And Burling and Tuke and Nathan. These people are extremely talented and they're young. So now it's about cultivating that talent and putting some structure around it to go and achieve great things. You know, will they be the skippers and, and leaders of their America's Cup team and get technologically interested in um, the nuances that are going on on the boat? Obviously, with the, all that foil control and everything, Burling um, and Nathan got very had to be very involved with the designers and their foiling experience in the moth helps them out a lot. They, they already understand about the angle of the foils and so um, yeah, I mean history repeats itself. You know, before me there was 
Dennis Connor, who really reinvented the America's Cup and how to play that game. Let's talk offshore. You know, won the Volvo Ocean Race with EF, and then, you know, next campaign, one of the most exciting campaigns I think we've ever had in the sport with Disney Pirates of the Caribbean. You know, how did how did that come about, and you know, how special was that time? So yeah, I had won the Whitbread Round the World Race eight years before, and uh, I just finished Athens. It was uh, May of two thousand five, and I wasn't really doing too much looking I think I was selling a little far 40 maybe with Kilroy and and I got a phone call one day from the Disney people and it was like May 3rd in 2005 and they said you know we'd really like to do the uh, Volvo Ocean Race and we were told that you're a person we should interview or contact could you come down to Burbank and have a meeting with us next Friday or I said sure I'll come down so, you know, I already knew, of course, that Bauer Becking had built his boat, the Telefonica, in Australia and was already halfway around the world sailing the thing back up to Europe as part of his training and that the ABN boats were being built. I mean, I, I knew that the, a lot was happening with that race, which would start basically November 1st, six months later. So I went to that meeting and they had these easels up with a bunch of artist renderings of what the sails would look like with the pirates and the you know skull and crossbones and and the t-shirts how the t-shirts were going to look and the caps and you know all this stuff and so they gave me about a 20 minute you know um, uh, in introduction as to what their idea was and, uh, and they wanted to promote the second movie so the first movie was called curse of the black pearl i believe and the second movie was going to be called dead man's chest so we were going to, the boat would be the Black Pearl and, you know, the Dead Man's Chest movie was going to be released while we were going around the world and they were going to, you know, leverage all the stopovers with their movie theater owners and they had this whole plan. So they went on for probably a half hour, 40 minutes. And then I said to him, I said, well, that sounds fantastic, but do you have a designer of the boat or do you, have you contacted anybody to build this boat? Oh, well, no, that's why we're talking to you. And I said, oh, I said, well, you know, one thing you should know is it takes eight months to build one of these boats and the race is going to start in six months. And they said, oh, well, isn't there anything we can do about that? So pretty much the meeting ended and I flew home. I told my wife at the time about it and, you know, it just sounded crazy and risky and, um, and I called a good friend of mine who was a watch captain on EF, Kimo Worthington. And I described it about the same length that I just described to you. And he goes, I'm in. I said, Kimo, no, that was not the right answer. He goes, Paul, it'll be amazing. We'll figure it out. We'll do it. Let's go. So we agreed, you know, pretty much we did. We just dug in and um, we got clever. We were able to buy the molds off of Ericsson. So we saved the six weeks there and, you know, people worked double time at Green Marine and in England and we got the boat about three weeks before the race started. It really wasn't finished and, you know, we broke the boat on the first night out in the ocean off Portugal and, um, but we managed to cobble the whole thing together and finish second, which in a way, in some ways was more satisfying actually than winning the first time because the challenge, the, you know, the hill was steeper and um, 
and we had a lot of fun along the way being pirates and you know entertaining kids at all the stopovers so it was a fantastic experience and one other tidbit when I was considering whether or not to do it was I mean who wouldn't you know how lucky did I get to be the guy that Disney called up and said will you be Captain Jack Sparrow you know I mean did you ever meet Johnny Depp yeah so what happened was at the London premiere um, we sailed the boat after the race was over we sailed the boat or powered it up the Thames River and we had it docked um, on one of the your piers up there near the London Bridge and they had the premiere in town and after the premiere um, Dick Cook and jo who was the CEO of Disney movies Disney pictures at the time and Johnny Depp presented me with the sword from the movie I have oh, it on a plaque and it says <laughs> Um, to Captain Paul Caird from Captain Jack Sparrow. Ah, oh, that is That's golden. one of my favorite uh, um, trophies. I remember that first night. I was at the, I was at the start of that race, and, uh, and you all left in northern Spain. And then the report started coming in. It was the first time, wasn't it, with, with Canton Keels? Mm -hmm. And all kinds of bother out in the Bay of Biscay. And one thing, I, you know, I loved your reports because it was the first time, really, that the drama came alive, you know, and everyone was following the Black Pearl. And here, first night, you know, the, the drama had started. Yeah. Yeah, we had, you know, damage to the, the plates that cover the, there's quite a large hole in the bottom of the boat to allow the canting keel to swing 40 degrees either side of centerline. And that system that slides across the hull had ripped off. And so we essentially had a two foot by one foot hole in the bottom of the boat. Um, it's contained in a case in, inside the boat, but if the lid to that case breaks, um, which it had a lot of water pressure on it at 30 knots, the water would simply flood into the boat. So we had to throttle way down um, and uh, eventually just head back to Portugal. Why did you want to communicate so much off the boat? Because at that time, it, it just wasn't the way it was done. Normally, they just kind of left, and occasionally you got a report. But you know, it felt like it was almost cathartic, maybe that you yeah. know, that you that you wanted to tell your story. Yeah, and I think earlier you asked me about what do people, what do I think people think of me, and I think um, some people think of my prolific writing off the boats as you know self-promotion and but really it never was that um, contrived or premeditated especially in the EF days you know that whole thing with Quokka Sports the internet had just started in 96 and what it is is that when I'm in that environment you know I write for Seahorse and a few other magazines every other month so I do a lot of writing and when I'm in an environment like that it's just the stuff flows easily. People might think I spent hours writing a thousand words. I can bang out a thousand word story in 15 minutes. And, um, you know, when, it, when I'm stimulated that way. And it's the best way to write when it's, when it's really coming to you naturally and it's just flowing. So, um, yeah, I never had any, any trouble at all creating content and trying to bring the race to, to the fans. The pirates too, as well, was all about you know exposure. It was essentially part of the job. I'm sure you watched this last edition, but it was the first time, perhaps, that we'd seen 
we'd seen the boats racing from off the boat. I mean, amazing drone footage. What did you think when you, yeah. when you watched that? I thought that's just so cool. I mean, I wish I had drone footage of my epic, uh, you know, sailing in the Southern Ocean. And in one day in particular, I wish I had a picture of, I was steering the boat. I sailed three times around Cape Horn, two full races. But in 2002, I did just the Auckland to Rio leg with Grant Dalton. And it, when it got really windy, only me, Bowerbecking, and Nico, Chris Nicholson, drove the boat because it's just, you know, nobody. And we had Freddie Loof on the boat. But um, I was driving, and Dalton had just come up on deck or something, standing next to me. And we, it was blowing 45, and we might have been just on a head sole and, a, and the main kind of reaching along, doing probably 30, 32 knots. And a sort of in the Southern Ocean, sometimes it gets real, the seas get mixed and you can get two waves from slightly different directions, maybe 30 degrees off. And the, the confluence of those two waves coming together can form an enormous wave. And we happened to get on one of those things and we were literally like up on a ski slope. And, and he says to me, we're up like this and the, you know, you don't have much room to turn a boat when it's blowing 40. You can't go up five degrees because it'll tip over. And if you go down too low, it's going to broke. So we're pretty much in a cattle shoot, you know, of true wind angle. And he says to me, are you going to go down that? I said, I said, mate, we are going down that. And we went down this enormous wave and I'll never, ever forget that. I don't think he will either. I wish uh, I had a drone shot of that wave. What did you think of, of the last edition? I mean, it, the Volvo seems, it seems a million miles away from what it used to be. Yeah, I, I think uh, it's, it's hard to say, Shirley, really. They've really created a, a race that's uh, one design, very close. They go around the world kind of in a pack because the weather's gonna do the same thing to each boat and they have the exact same sail inventory. And, um, you know, people always ask me, do I miss the America's Cup or do I miss the Volvo Ocean Race? And the truth is, I think I was very, very lucky. I think I did both those events at the best of times. And with regard to the Whitbread and Volvo, you know, we weren't exactly strict one design. They were box rules and you could design your own sails, did a little different sizing. And what that did is it led people to different trajectories in the wind in the weather window whereas nowadays they're all if they all want to go the fastest speed with an a3 up you know they're going to go exactly down the same course so a lot of people like that though they think it's horse racing and it's real close um, we did probably more weather routing and playing with our sail combinations to figure out what would be the right route to take given a certain weather forecast the whole Volvo Ocean race is going down a you know a different route. Are you across all of that, and do you think it's right? I do. What I really like, and it's kind of the first time in our sport we've seen it, at least recently, is confluence rather than divergence. So, I like that they're trying to use the same boat to do the Vendée Globe, and the which is the single-handed around the world race and the crewed around the world race, the Volvo Ocean race use the same tool, they'll have to make some modifications, 
Um, but net net, it provides kind of around the world race every other every year, um, alternating between the single handed and the and the crude, and you know for sponsors and even for fans, you just get more continuity of um, the product to put it in a clinical term, which is the racing, um, and the fans love it and the sponsors love it so. I applaud uh, Breezius and, and Johan Celine for, for doing that. And I think there'll be some details. It'll be a little hard to sort out exactly, but I think it, they're on the right track. Change is never, it's never easy. <laughs> it's never easy, particularly in something like the Volvo Ocean Race that, that is such a history and such a legacy. Yeah, yeah. It is hard to change and... I don't know how it'll how we'll look back on the one design era of the Volvo 65 that they just finished, you know, the two editions they just finished. But um, I think it's a good move to go to the uh, Imaka um, and use it for both. And it's a very fast boat. Um, it basically is going to foil um, in the ocean. So that's, you know, it'll be pretty exciting. Half of the population of Italy was watching us on TV. 30 years I had been doing the cup, and Nathan comes along, he's the youngest guy by far, and he gets to drive. I'd had the mustache for 30 years, and I just thought it was time for a change. I've got to ask you, Paul, if you're enjoying your first podcast experience. I apologize that we're in my bedroom. I did try to be you know, under a palm tree somewhere on a beach, but this will have to do. No, I, I, I'm honored to be um, doing this with you Shirley and uh, I think a podcast for sailing would be will be very well received. Are you a, are you a podcast listener? I've listened to a few um, from some Marines uh, a guy named Jocko um, that I that I like to listen to but uh, I wouldn't say I'm huge I've listened to a few TED talks. What would you what would you say about the last America's Cup I know you were there throughout of it what do you think about, you know, the direction of it all? Um, I just, I worry that the fast boat concept that we're on for the last three editions, last two that we've seen, and, and we'll have it again this next time, isn't as compelling to the public as the the type of boat where the crew maneuvers play an important role where the strategy and positioning at the start play a very determinant role i do know that you know the starting we watched the starts with spithill and and burling uh in bermuda and there, there was a bit in that but you know the times when burling was behind and went around the first mark behind he just found a lane either he jibed first or he jibed after and the speed difference was so big it just um you know, if it was car racing, if it wasn't for the fact that sailing has wind shifts and puffs of wind, you know, not steady wind, you could just send the two boats around the track independently of each other and just record the time. I mean, that's what we were watching. We were just watching a, a time trial, a speed trial. And I, I think that's a little bit of a shame, personally. I, I would like to see more mixing and... Uh, drama and you know the crew 
you know, like in a football game, I mean, people really get into the offensive line guys, you know, 330 pounds and they're crushing the quarterback and, you know, stuff like that. So I think, you know, well, last time for sure it was a little brutal with the cyclores and all that. It was just, you got the feeling that Blair Took and Burling were sailing the boat and the other guys were pedaling as fast as they could. <laughs> and a young man's game as well. I mean, I think that it's the first time really the cup has been so in that direction. Well, you're right. You know, when I first did the cup in 83, uh, the little, the young guys were on the bow, and you got to the back of the boat by having been in the cup a few times. And I, and I remember that was striking to me in Artemis, my 30, you know, that was 30 years I had been doing the cup from 83 to 13, and Nathan comes along, he's the youngest guy by far, and he gets to drive. <laughs> Just with the history of it all, that wasn't quite right, but um, that's the game that we created. And, you know, I have to say, I, I was very supportive of, Oracle and Russell and what they were trying to do and we've run that test now twice and like I said I'm not sure it's um, as compelling as let's say the 2007 America's Cup. The next cup looks even more strange. <laughs> it's going to be more strange. Now they did get some other entries but I think that's just a bit of a farce really i mean even if they got some new entries you know how are you going to beat um ben ainsley who's been working on it is a second you know and they've been work they're already sailing their prototypes and american magic and and team new zealand you know it doesn't matter you could have 500 million dollars but if you're starting today you will not catch up to those people when i was thinking about this podcast Paul I was remembering when we filmed with you for an entire week it must have been maybe yeah, 20, yeah. 2010 and we followed you around for for CNN lots of different locations um, in Europe and one of them was Portofino and mm -hmm. I you know I never forget that you speak very good Italian it was a bit of a surprise and also you were really recognized there that people would stop you in the street I mean that what's that like and you know why is that come about that's all off Ilmore de Venezia. I mean, Italian, Italians are like, I think like Brazilians in terms of being fans. They're, they don't even understand the sailing. You know, the taxi drivers and the people who followed Ilmore de Venezia had no idea about sailing, never been on a boat, lived in the middle of Italy somewhere. But if you've got the flag of your country going, those people are behind it, whatever it is. And, you know, Half of the population of Italy was watching us on TV for the 10 days of the America's Cup, well, the finals against Team New Zealand and then the America's Cup. And yeah, I was just shocking to me when it was over in San Diego and I went back to Italy to, we had a little tour of, you know, yeah, we were, we were downright famous. You know, it was hard to, people, you couldn't get down the street. So that was an interesting thing to go through a little and you know you really see how people like Michael Jackson or I mean people who are really famous just have a hard time uh, coping and you know living living a normal life it's virtually impossible you were quite recognizable back then and I looked at a little bit of the footage and of course you had the mustache you were the most recognizable sailor in the in the whole sport what happened to that Paul yeah, well, I had a girlfriend who who 
agreed, I would say. I wouldn't say she talked me into it, but I just thought it was time for a change. I'd had the mustache for 30 years, and, um, you know, I mean, that's the Marlboro Man look, and I think Marlboro Man, you know, was happening in the 70s and 80s, and now the scruff is, is kind of in, so... Um, Hard to say goodbye to an old friend, I bet. It was It was a little odd when I did it, and, I mean, even just the tactile sensations of not having it there and but and my daughter said to me dad there goes the brand <laughs> she, and she's kind of right I mean you know um, I was much more recognizable yeah now it probably cut down my recognizability in Italy by more than half I always, when I look back at, at my medal pictures I've got these terrible haircuts and at the time I thought you know had quite a good look. I wonder what you think now when you when you look at the photographs of of Paul Caird with the tash. What do you think? No, I like it. I mean, what I see more than just the mustache, I see just you know the younger face and everything's nice and plump and firm and you know. Um, I I'm very happy with the life I've lived. All right, let's get back to something more serious. I mean, you entered the. The America's Cup world at a very young age. How did all that happen? Well, I was uh, mentored by a guy named Tom Blackholler, and first I started crewing for him in the Star when I was 18 years old. He was running a, a laser clinic at an island that St. Francis Yacht Club has up at, in the Delta behind uh, the bay, and I was about 15 at the time, and was part of a group of kids including Kostecki and Russ Silvestri and John Bertrand, the American who won the Laser Worlds two or three times. Um, we all grew up together and Black Holler was 20 years older than us and he was uh, came to speak at a clinic that we were having and you know he kind of noticed me and then he probably waited a couple years I was probably a little too small and then he asked me to crew for him in the star and did that for a few years, and then when I got out of college, it was 81, I graduated from university, and he said, come on, Kayard, we're gonna go do the America's Cup. So, um, and how old were you then? I was 22. So I went and did it, and I was a jib trimmer the first time, and then for Fremantle in 86, I was the tactician, and really running the sailing program for him. We had a two-boat program. He was trying to raise the money, and. Um, deal with the designer and things like that so I made sure we went sailing every day and we went to the gym every day and and, I, and then for that one I was 26 <clears throat> and in the middle of all that I had met Raul Gardini um, I met a lot of Italians because I skippered a boat in the 84 Sardinia Cup and basically was the top boat so I got all the Italian I started to get my Italian recognition in the sailing world then Gardini asked me to work for him directly after Fremantle. I had been working at North Sales. And um, I started North Sales one design with Vince Brune. So in the old days, Finn sales were made in Pewaukee because it was Peter Barrett. Star sales were made in San Diego Loft because it was uh, Vince and, well, Lowell, of course. And then um, they decided, though, that we should make all one design sales in one one or two locations. So we had North or North Sales One Design started in San Diego and there was another one in Germany. So Vince Brun and I started the one in San Diego together and but I didn't last really long cutting the corner patches for snipe sales. 
That was like, my first like task. I get tired. <laughs> that was my, Vince said, Paul, you need to learn how to make the sale. So uh, you go cut some corner patches for snipe mains for about three months. So I was doing that. And, and then someone said, hey, they need a skipper in the Sardinia Cup for a 50-footer, Ferrer's 50-footer, and Herman says Kayard should do it. So they sent me over, Blackhaller sent me over there, and uh, we did real well. So anyway, I met Gardini. You never finished the, the corner patches. No, I left the corner patches behind. And uh, yeah, so then I had my first opportunity when I was 29, Mr. Gardini. We had won the Maxi World Championship the same year I won the Star World Championship, 88. And then he said, Paulino, we have to do the America's Cup, and I'm not going to do it without you. And in those days, it wasn't that common. You had to be a national of the country. And what it meant in those days was I had to move to Italy for three years. And that I would be racing against the San Diego Yacht Club, which I was a member. And, you know, and so it took, I was a little scared and intimidated. And, but I came to the right conclusion and I went and did it. And it was a huge, apart from the success that we had, it was just a great life experience. You know, like you said, I can speak fluent Italian. My daughter was born there. You know, it's just... Italy is a huge part of my life. And you won the Challenger Series. And then we won the Louis Vuitton Cup. Yeah, it was huge. We lost 4-1 to in the America's Cup final, but um, we beat Russell Coots and Team New Zealand in the Louis Vuitton final, and that was a big dogfight there. That you know, Bowsprit protests, and uh, we were down 3-1, to and we came back and won 5-3. to did you ever win? Did you ever think you could win the whole thing? Um, maybe the time that I thought I had the best chance was 2000 with America One. Um, there was just enough unknown out there, you know. And we got to four to four. Well, actually, we were up four to three against Prada, and we lost the last two races. And we got our boat real late. We got the race boat. Um, for in the third round robin and we just didn't have enough time to really know what we were doing with it um, we made a couple mistakes in in the setup of the boat and um, yeah so there was a lot of potential there but then Prada did get shellacked pretty good by Russell and the team in the finals five to nothing so you know probably wouldn't have probably we wouldn't have won you know as a as a Brit We've never won it. And, you know, we live in hope that one day Ben Ainsley will bring the America's Cup back to cows where it belongs. As an American, you know, where does the cup sit on your radar? Is it, is it the ultimate prize? Yeah, I think it is. You know, it is. It's just got the history, 160, 65 years. Um, so, you know, that has a lot of value and... Um, a lot of teams and famous people have chased it and uh, you know all that salt that people have put in blood sweat and tears and it, that adds value to to the trophy and um, yeah I think it still is the pinnacle event in our sport. What about you what's your personal relationship with it I mean you've come so close. Yeah it's kind of a shame I mean I, I was in the finals to editions in a row 92 and 95 and lost them both and very close in 2000 so the 90s was my decade um, for the cup really and 
um, yeah, it didn't, didn't happen. You know, when you start to sail in the cup, a lot of good sailors haven't won the America's Cup. Um, a lot of good skip, you know, the skippers of my era, Chris Dixon, Rod Davis, Peter Gilmore. I mean, they never even raced in the America's Cup as skippers. Rod, Rod Davis, you know. So the fact that I got there twice as a helmsman, you know, I have to take some some satisfaction from but it's such a complex game with the boat being so important um even then the boat was very important uh in the outcome you know it's not a star where or a laser where we're all pretty darn equal with the equipment and if you're robert shite you know you're you're probably going to win because he's just the best sailor in the world um the america's cup Dennis Connor was the best sailor in the world, probably in 1983, certainly in the America's Cup game. And he almost won with a much slower boat. He, was, he got to three to one up, but that was largely due to some mishaps on the Australian boat, the wing keel boat. And, you know, in the end, they, they came through and won as they should have. The boat was much faster. So even then, when the best sailor in the world um, was having a go at it. He couldn't overcome the speed factor. We've not seen you in the cup arena since Artemis Racing. San Francisco, the, the big boats in 2013. I know that was a, a really hard time for you. You were in charge of you know, Swedish Artemis Racing, you know, good budget, and on the outside anyway, it looked like a, you know, an amazing project to be involved in, until of course Andrew Simpson lost his life. You know, I know, Paul, that, you know, that moment had a profound effect on you. What do you think now, you know, as time's passed, what do you think of that whole time? Well, I mean, the most important part of the whole time was that a great guy lost his life. And, um, you know, it's hard to put into words what that means, really. I, I was with him in the gym in the morning, I remember, and... He was telling me it was his wife's birthday that day and, you know, what he had planned to do that night to take her out to dinner and everything. And you can't imagine a more opposite scenario. Um, so, yeah, it affected all of us. You know, it affected Ian Percy the most, of course, because he was so close, having done won the Olympics with Bart and grown up with him. And it was really Purse that pushed to get Bart there. And he had only just gotten there about three weeks before the incident happened. So that's the most important um, thing about that Artemis uh, America's Cup. And it's unfortunate because it's a, you know, it's not a good ending. Um, as far as the, the whole project goes, we had a lot of, heartache, frustration, difficulty, I would say, on the design side because our designers kept telling us that the boats weren't going to foil. And we were saying, well, you know, New Zealand's down there foiling and yeah, but, you know, this isn't going to work and this isn't going to work. And, and then in the end, you know, obviously they were all foiling and we had to do a huge last minute about face from a design standpoint to try to catch up and play the game and of course it was way too late so it's it was really um, stressful and a shame that we were just technically on the wrong path you seemed different though after that and i just wondered how you know how perhaps it affected 
pull chaos? Well, it's just it's a hard it's a heartache. I, I've done the I had done the America's Cup six or seven times, and you know I had many amazing experiences, and that's probably the last America's Cup I'll do or be in charge of. And it just ended. Not only did it end badly, but it ended in the loss of life. And I've sailed around the world twice and around Cape Horn three times, and you know I've never lost a man. Um, and I wasn't on the boat that day. I was in a rib. So, you know, but it, it was just, um, yeah, I mean, those are scars, basically. Now, Paul, when you look at the sport, I mean, the speeds are getting, it's getting faster and faster all the time. You know, you hope that at least the game has changed from a safety point of view. What do you, you know, what do you think when you see that? Well... There's risk, you know, there's risk. There's risk in sailing around the world. People have died sailing around the world, and there's risk if you're a mountain climber. And I don't know that we should throttle back the sport because it's dangerous. I think a slower boat might make the racing more interesting and compelling, both for those who are doing it and those who are spectating. But, um, you know, surely it's there's risks in a lot of sports and um, sailing has just become more extreme in recent years but we're seeing it throughout the entire sport we've just seen francois gaba foil across the atlantic yeah. alone you know what can be safe about that well he didn't he didn't capsize i guess the autopilots are that good you know i mean it's all about technology and it's evolving all the time and the autopilots are, whether the boat's on a hull and doing 30 or foiling at 40, 45, I guess the autopilot is um, doing its thing. And, um, you know, the day it doesn't, he'll flip over. It looks now like the Volvo Ocean Race boats will, will in some way foil also. You know, it's, it's a massive change, isn't it? I mean, when you look back in your career and you, you see where the sport is, now, you know, what do you think and, and where is it going to end? Yeah, I, I, you know what, Shirley, I don't really, it doesn't, I'm not in awe of it. Um, you know, I sailed big, heavy maxi boats and 12 meters in the America's Cup. And, you know, the maxi boats used to go around the world, Seula and those kind of boats, Flyer. Um, you know, they were big Swan 77s and they were going trundling around the world. Um, now, you know, we've got canting keel boats. I mean, who, who would have thought, well, the keel's going to swing 40 degrees either side and the boat's going to plane at 40 knots. And then now, that was, you know, that's already 15-year-old technology, and now they're going to foil. So it doesn't surprise me at all. Um, I, I wouldn't throttle back on that. I think it's just natural progressions. The kite borders are, are uh, foiling too. Everybody's foiling. Everybody who can is foiling. We haven't figured out how to make the starboats foil yet. No, there's a challenge. So how's it, how's it been, Paul? How have you enjoyed your podcast? I've, I've enjoyed it. I hope I've been able to um, you know, share a little bit of myself with uh, your audience. And you know, I'm super comfortable doing it with you. As I said, we have a long history of doing interviews and sharing the sport we love with the fans. So um, anytime. 
It's been a joy speaking to you. Thank you very much. Thank you. He's a fascinating character, fiercely driven, talented, a believer in his own ability. But the thing I love the most about him is his honesty. He backs himself and says what he thinks. And I loved that story of him and Grant Dalton in the Southern Ocean. We'll definitely ask Grant about that when I see him next. Please let me know what you think of Paul's chat. Leave a note on iTunes or I'm pretty easy to find at Shirley Sale on Instagram and Twitter, just me on Facebook, or send an email, podcast at shirleyrobertson.com. That's about it from us for this month. Next month, well, I'm not too sure what to tell you about next month's guest. When it comes to superlatives, I guess there's quite a few I could use. Is he the busiest man in sailing? Is he the most famous man in sailing? possibly both of those, and a whole lot more. He's won the America's Cup for three different nations. He's been knighted for services to the sport. But he's also one of sailing's most contentious characters. He's a fierce competitor out on the race course and in the boardroom. And next month, we sit down for an hour of chat with Russell Coates. Thanks again for listening. It's really great to have your company. And as ever, a massive thanks to Tim at Vertical Films for editing and producing the pod, but mostly for his unwavering enthusiasm for it all. Legend. Until then, thank you so much for listening. Have fun on the water. And sail safe, everyone. This is Cup One. Rachel speaking. Cups are coming here. Cups are coming. We're 1.5 below. Stand by, two times here, boys. We're looking at 10.5 and 42. This is Castle One standing by. Out.